Thanks for joining me today for BIV Daily, the podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk Lapointe, Editor-in-Chief. I spent 14 years in Ottawa as a member of the Parliamentary Press Gallery, first with the country under the rule of Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, then very briefly John Turner, then Brian Mulroney, then very briefly Kim Campbell, then Jean Chrétien. The Parliamentary Press Gallery is a creature common in parliamentary countries. It serves as its own institution and has variously been partisan and then impartial, uh, adversarial, and at times aligned with governments of the day. My guest today has spent three years researching a history of this relationship and written a book that not only explores the role of this gallery in Canadian history, but raises important questions about the direction of media in this country. Robert Lewis is no ordinary writer of this book. His distinguished journalistic career over decades propelled him to the top ranks of the craft from his print reporting days at the Montreal Star to a correspondence role at Time Life into management and ultimately the editorship of McLean's for seven years, then to the top job overseeing content development for the Rogers Media portfolio of magazines. He's also a former chair of the Canadian Journalism Foundation and full disclosure, a good acquaintance. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining. Good to be with you, Kirk. Uh, the book fills a gap in our knowledge, uh, obviously, but uh, why, why choose to do it now? Well, it all started when I was chair of the Journalism Foundation, and uh, we had a panel in Ottawa called uh, Does the Press Gallery Matter? And I got to thinking about that, and it struck me that there had been a lot of changes. It mm -hmm. was just in the dying days of the Harper government. Um, I didn't have any idea that the book would f launch in the midst of the angst about news and the future of news, but, but here we are. Yeah, here we are indeed. But why was there a press gallery in the first place? Well, there, there had been a press gallery even before Confederation. They actually worked out of uh, the Parliament buildings mm -hmm. uh, in 1866, Upper and Lower Canada, and the, and the whole story of Confederation coming together. Uh, the press covering governments goes back to the beginnings, and uh, so it was a natural evolution. Uh, but they were very, very partisan in those days. I mean, the papers were owned by the parties. Mm -hmm. And if you worked for a paper, you hewed to that party's line. It, that would astonish people today. Yeah. The idea that you had essentially a, a political party-directed press. Right. Well, MacDonald funded the start of papers. I mean, he, he founded a paper called The Empire. And when he didn't find it sufficiently Tory, uh, he created The Mail. Uh, Laurier had his paper uh, in Quebec City, uh, now known as Le Soleil. Uh, La Presse was one of his babies. Um, uh, there were all kinds of, you know, R.B. Bennett founded a paper in Regina. Um, and uh, they were so partisan that they basically just covered their people. <laughs> and Arthur Ford tells this great story, but when he was freelancing for a uh, paper in Halifax, uh, he, uh, he asked the owner, uh, how much copy do you want on Laurier? versus a guy named Hazen, who was a friend of the owners, Crockett. And Crockett said, ignore Laurier, send Hazen verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they handed out uh, information to newspapers like patronage. For example, election calls, they would give the election date to their, their political party paper, but not to the opposition. And uh, the, the, the reporters who worked for the, uh, the government press, they were called the ministerial press. And they had good seats in the press gallery, and the, the rest of them sat wherever they could. Did the public understand this? Well, I don't know if they had any idea. Um, it was the way it worked. I mean, 
to be fair, uh, the reporters took down in longhand uh, great gobs of the debate. They were really good shorthand takers. Yeah. And, and they would run two and 3,000 words of the Commons debate. So that, that part of it was authentic. But then they'd lard in all their opinions, and the headlines, of course, were completely distorted. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they, there, were, there were some elegant appeals uh, from editors. There's one editor uh, at the Winnipeg Free Press he said, now, look, I supported you in times of trouble. You now need to support me because I'm to- totally tainted as a newspaper per- person. I can't get a job. And so you need to put me in the Senate. And, you know, that's the way it worked then. The loyalists got knighthoods and they were put in the Senate and, you know, they got all kinds of patronage and payoffs. It's an astounding sound uh, of, 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 a, of an era today. And yet, of course, you can still see, I mean, look, a couple of weeks ago, there was Sean Hannity out on the campaign trail with Donald Trump, right? Uh, you know, for the midterm elections. Um, this startles people today, yeah. but it went on for what a um, hundred years? Hundred years? It, almost. I mean, I I kind of mark it into the '56 pipeline debate when uh, C.D. Howe and the Liberals ran through a pipeline financing bill, and they did it with such brutality. They shut down debate. There were allegations that the speaker changed his rulings repeatedly under pressure from the government. Uh, CCF leader stormed the house, uh, the well of the house, waving his fists at the speaker. And I think that's kind of what turned the press gallery into, in effect, the official opposition. Hmm. I mean, Val Sears of the Toronto Star, a couple of years later, famously kind of boarded a campaign train and and announced, come, gentlemen, we have a government to overthrow. (laughs) And... uh, so but, that was the first uh, – the, the, the gallery became very adversarial at that point. It became adversarial, and, and I could see where it would have become adversarial by virtue also of class. I mean, here you were uh, – you know, your book chronicles the fact that many of these men, and they were almost all men at the right. time, came uh, largely speaking from working class backgrounds. They were not hugely ed- educated. Uh, they were um, not – terribly much schooled in things like political science. Right. They were just general purpose writers. Right. Uh, many of them, you know, failed novelists or, or other types of writers. Well, I mean, a lot of them didn't finish school. Um, hmm. And being a newspaper man, as they were called then, because there were no women covering parliament then, uh, was, was a route to respectability. Yeah. And, and so guys like John Willison of The Globe and John Defoe uh, of the Free Press in Winnipeg, they became very much involved in the in the development of, of party policies. Um, they were both very close to Laurier, for example, and uh, advised him on various things. Uh, they both then eventually fell out with Laurier over conscription, but uh, you know they they were very instrumental in setting the tone for government policy. Yeah, in your view, how how has the gallery served the role? But it, and and has it failed at times in its role? Do you think? Well, sure. I mean, uh, there's there's lots of foibles and and, and lots of uh, errors, and uh, there there also uh, exist in a in a period of immense distrust about all institutions, frankly, but especially media. And uh, I, I don't blame people. You know, I mean, there's such a plethora of signals out there now from you know Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and opinions and people uh, who who like Hannity who masquerade as journalists. I mean, I, I certainly draw a distinction between guys like Hannity and, and regular 
journalists who actually check facts and make sure they got the whole story. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I argue that the reporting today is very credible compared to the days of yore that we've been talking about. And, you know, on balance, most reporters, uh, uh, flawed though they are, do make an honest effort to convey both sides of the story and to, you know, get to people who uh, may not like what's about to be written about them to give them a chance to respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole media ma now confuses the whole thing. I mean, reporting and opinion are sometimes indistinguishable. And, uh, and so it is understandable that people are skeptical. In your research uh, for the book, which I, I, I should remind people is Power, Prime Ministers, and the Press uh, from Dundurn Publishing, um, can you take a look at, at really what, how the relationship between the press and the prime ministers evolved? You know, were, were the prime ministers on first-name bases all the time with the reporters? Did they, did they socialize with them? Did, was there a, a clubbiness or a coziness that maybe doesn't exactly happen anymore? Well, yes, and, and there's lots of examples in the book. I mean, uh, Mackenzie King at one point heard that uh, Blair Fraser uh, of, of McLean's had uh, lost his dog, and, uh, and King called him up and, and a few days later and asked him, if, you know, have you found your dog yet? I mean, this is the Prime Minister of Canada calling a reporter to. Well, he had a, he had a relationship with a dog, as you know, well, as he well, did, yeah, right? So, yeah, and important. it was the same breed. I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but uh, there's also uh, a wonderful story I unearthed in the archive. Vic Mackey, uh, he was sent off to cover the 1948 election, and he was assigned to cover the Conservative leader John Bracken. And his editor said, "Don't leave Bracken until he stops making news." And Bracken, of course. It was a problem because he never really did make news. And so when Mackey arrived, he said, look, I got this terrible problem. He said, I've been told to stay with you guys until he stops making news, but he never says anything. <laughs> Is he as dumb as he sounds? And the aide, chief of staff, says, dumber. He never <laughs> says a word. So Mackey says, well, what about this? Like, why doesn't he try to attack the NDP or the CCF tomorrow? It was, it was then known as mm-hmm. the CCF. Why, why not attack the CCF? and be a good story. And uh, so Bracken attacks the CCF. Mackey writes it down. It ends up on page one, and they're all happy. And the next morning, he sees the chief of staff, and the chief of staff says, now, Mackey, that went very well. What have you got for us today? (laughs) So, I mean, very symbiotic relationship that would really not exist today. Well, although you do see a fair number of of journalists wind up as ministerial aides all the time. Right. Because right. they're effective communicators, they know a little bit about a policy, uh, they know the Ottawa uh, district pretty well. Yeah, and that's actually been the case for years. You yeah. know, we in our time, uh, that was very much the case. And, and uh, sometimes, as you know, they were often the most difficult people to deal with, right? Yeah. Former oh, yeah. journalists on, on a ministerial staff, and they wouldn't tell you anything. Because they knew how not to tell you something. Exactly. Much better. <laughs> they'd, they'd had it done to themselves all the time. Um, when were women finally welcomed? Well, isn't that a, a, an interesting question? I mean, for for years, uh, the women, uh, and there were many women who, who got out of the Victorian era through the newspaper business. Just, uh, just to back up a second, uh, the party papers ended when the, when the parties realized they couldn't afford to run these newspapers. I mean, people weren't reading them. So they then had to develop uh, copy and content that was appealing to audiences mm-hmm. and to advertisers. Yeah, and the women were the people who made the decisions about what to buy. And so, 
the, the content originally in these papers was very much focused on women in a typical ghetto women's section news. But a lot of these women came out of that era as reporters, good reporters, and one of them was Genevieve Lipset Skinner, and she'd had a long distinguished career, had worked in Winnipeg for years, uh, was a leading member of the suffragette movement. Uh, she had run for the Conservative Party provincially. She was the first married woman in the province to become uh, a lawyer. And uh, when she got defeated, she said, I'm going to go back to journalism. And so she said to her boss, uh, I want to go to Ottawa. And he says, you can't go to Ottawa. And she said, why not? She said, he said, the press gallery won't let you in as a member. Uh, so he gave the job to a man. Hmm. And she got mad. You know, she took herself to Ottawa. She, her brother was there on the hill. Uh, and uh, she started writing pieces, and she ended up with five newspapers as a freelancer from Montreal all the way to Vancouver, and still the press gallery wouldn't let her in. So finally, the enlightened publisher then of the Vancouver Sun said, okay, you can be my correspondent in Ottawa. I am officially naming you as my correspondent, and then she took that, her credentials, and they finally admitted a woman, 1922 is when she started. Wow. Genevieve Lipset Skinner was her name, and she became the pioneer. And for years after that, and roughly in decades, there would be one woman a decade later, Evelyn Tufts came to the gallery. There's a picture of her in my book, actually. Uh, Ten years later, a third woman. You know, So the women didn't really start to come to the gallery, really, frankly, until the end of my time and, and sort of in your time is when, yeah. when women really started to take their place in the press gallery. Yeah, but, and you, you started in, to have bureau chiefs, uh, right. leadership, I mean, a lot of, a lot of cases right. of organizations uh, by women, yeah. There's about 30 women, as I count, who are now bureau chiefs in Ottawa. Uh, but even in my time in 65, Joyce Fairburn was the only woman in the gallery. Huh. She worked for the free press chain. And, and they had this annual two-fisted drinking thing called the press gallery dinner, a oh, yeah. Thai dinner. Oh, yeah, those. Which we've all attended. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Joyce could buy a ticket for a guest, but she could not go because women no were kidding. prohibited. And yeah. the press club down the street, which was you know the watering hole for the hill, yeah, you couldn't be a you couldn't be a, a member if you were a woman. And that was that was into the seventies. Yeah, yeah, I remember toward the well, it was eighty one when I arrived, and my first shift at the Canadian Press, I showed up and at five p.m. I had the night shift, of course, I was the junior guy, and everybody had a stubby bottle of beer on the desk. And I just thought, what have I arrived into here? I mean, we didn't have that in Toronto. They were all pretty, you know, pretty on the up. Yeah, yeah. But the culture of drinking has has also just coursed through the gallery over the years. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it, mercifully, it's changed now. But when I arrived- Well, you can't afford it. Right. <laughs> so, well, when I arrived, you could afford it. Uh, in 65, they had a, a blind pig and the the guy who ran the gallery, they would serve drinks at your desk, you know, 50 cents for a Ryan that's right. Coke, which was a really popular that's right. drink. In they were a dollar when I got there. Dollar. A dollar. And, then, uh, and, and scotch and it, was 75 cents in my day. So and, that was and the bar opened at 11. Right. So in fact, you know, even on Fridays when question period was, was early, right. you could have a drink before you got in to put the question yeah. period. And you could have several for the 215 version. Well, Marjorie Nichols, who um, mm. candidly wrote about her battle with alcohol, said it kind of really started in the press gallery after, you know, yeah. filing reports. You'd sit around with the boys and, and have a beer. Mm. You, you know, you you can see today with Donald Trump a really aggressive tone with reporters, um, uh, even banning Jim Acosta of CNN, you know, in, in recent days. Uh, 
Which prime ministers were tough on the press? Well, I guess the the toughest was, uh, uh, in terms of access, was uh, Stephen Harper. Yeah. I mean, he took the art to a high level. But Trudeau was no... Uh, no soft touch either. I mean, he had total disdain for everything we did. Uh, and if, if you ask Trudeau a question in one of his very rare press sessions, you had to be able to almost empirically state the information. This was no. This was not a guy who was going to take an anecdote for a question. No, and and I really enjoyed covering him for that reason because you really had to bring your A game with him. <laughs> you know, you really had to push back. Yeah. And and literally, one of our colleagues, Jim Munson, who's now in the Senate, mm. literally did push him one day. And yeah. He says, don't shove me. <laughs> Munson said, well, don't shove me. Yeah. We all have our, um, we all have conflicts of interest. And uh, I want to know, how well do you think media police theirs over the years? I mean, we, did a lot of, a lot of journalists, in a way, socialize the longer that they stayed in Ottawa and thus become very complicit in some of the the dynamic of power there? Well, sure. I mean, uh, there were all kinds of examples of friendships. Uh, you know, Grant Dexter, who was a fantastically uh, well-connected reporter back in the day, um, he basically said at one point to a friend, our, our mission is to make Mike shine. Mike was Lester Pearson. Wow. And they were very instrumental in getting him elected. They really loved the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, he liked them. Um can, can you can you avoid it? Do you think the longer that you're there, I mean, you come, you do come to like the subjects of your reporting at times. True, uh, but I th- I think as a as a reporter with a, a traditional view of what your role was, it can be done. I mean, I I was friendly with a lot of my my uh, sources, but. I don't think I ever pulled any punches. And, and frankly, I didn't have all the same sources by the end of my eight years in Ottawa uh, because I guess I burned a few bridges along the way. Yeah. I mean, my my uh, view was that if if both sides of a story were unhappy with something in your report, you were probably doing a good job. <laughs> and, and not that I aimed to do that, but, you know, that was often the result. Yeah. Uh, but the whole uh, business of tightening the loop is is really now incredible. I was shocked to go back to Ottawa. We used to walk around the hallways. We used to uh, we yeah. used to be allowed in in, in the, the back lobby in, of the of the house of and Congress. behind I, the benches. Yeah, I think in your day they actually threw you out of the yeah. the lobbies. Yeah, and I, and you were one of the people that protested against the. Uh, the lack of access because they were really tightening the news. Yeah, it was getting a little, uh, a little crazy, and a lot of that just was the hypersensitive nature of some of the, uh, and, and I think some of the very insecure members of parliament. Yeah, you know, who didn't yeah. want to be overheard or didn't want to have discussions in the back benches. But as you know, those those areas in behind the benches were instrumental in you getting uh, access to the reporting that you needed in order to get a proper story done in yeah. a given day because. Yeah. These, these people would just disappear, scatter to the breezes. You'd never be able to get right. them. Well, I remember uh, we used to go down after question period, and Deef would stand there in the, in the lobby, just steps off the floor of the House of Commons, and regale us with, with stories. Yeah. He was a former leader at that point. Uh, the, the thing that really sh- struck me is today I see grown men and women reporters behind pens. You heard they're, they're penned in literally behind yeah. ropes and uh, – 
and you know the politicians sail by uh, thrown off their one liners that have been scripted for for them by somebody else the whole thing is pretty artificial and it's been an incremental yeah move this way i mean you could start to see it in the 80s and and yeah. eventually then there was a microphone set up and then the microphone included a pen and then the microphone sometimes would never be visited yeah. uh in yeah. the course of the day and you would be left without stuff yeah uh and of course you can't roam the halls no, um, in no. the way that you once could, you, no. where you knock on a door of an MP and go in and see him or her. Uh, that's, and, that's and the pretty other long. thing, in, in my time, you could also get access to the deputy ministers and the ADN, assistant deputy ministers. So the policy people yeah. were available. And you could actually have a decent conversation uh, about what does this policy mean? And what about this? And what about that? I mean, there was- On a, background. Yeah, on yeah. background. Yeah. Uh, and- and uh, even the Trudeau people would release some cabinet documents that had background information about uh, reasons for a decision. Um, so it's tough now to get decent information. Yeah. Um, and you can even see it, Bob, with the you know 30 plus years now that we're in, 35 years, we're into uh, access to information legislation yeah. in this country, which was going to be uh, a nice layer upon this disclosure. And if anything, it's actually been used as a bit of a device to ensure that things don't get disclosed. Yeah. I mean, it's Although just, one of the impacts of the tightening of the news, especially in the Harper area, is it turned a lot of reporters into really good investigative specialists. <laughs> Since they couldn't get information from their yeah. regular sources, they started reading documents, asking for documents, uh, reading public accounts, and doing things that they hadn't been doing. Yeah. And, and Jennifer Ditchburn was one of the good examples of that with uh, then with Canadian Press. and. Yeah. And she told me that, you know, they basically turned us into a whole lot of good investigative journalists. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, it, let's talk a bit about the Canadian press. I mean, it's, it's an old stomping grounds of mine. Um, I spent, I think, 14 years in Toronto and Ottawa for it. But you actually, in your book, uh, pin the CP strike as being a bit of a turning point for the influence of print in that city. Well, it was because uh, a number of us supported uh, physically by walking in the picket line with them, uh, their bid for uh, a first contract. And, mm -hmm. and Canadian Press had always held out against unions yeah. for years. Um, and uh, the, the key moment came when Pierre Trudeau walked along. He was going to go into the press building to do a, a press conference. And he turned to, I think it was Jerry McNeil, and said, is this mm. a legal strike? And uh, Jerry said, yeah, it is. And he said, well, I'm not going to cross. So the Prime Minister of Canada did not cross the CP picket line. Yeah. And from there, the dam broke because Diefenbaker supported them. A lot of MPs came to support them. Mm. But it was kind of the last hurrah because it was in the end, uh, not a powerful first contract, but it was a first contract. Yeah. But after that, television came into the house and then the scrums took over mm. and, and print kind of uh, went into the background. You know, I mean, yeah. What matters was the, was the circus then. You know. uh, among the many legends of the Canadian press was the fact that you could not get married without asking permission of the company <laughs> well, because they gave married men more money. You got a raise if you were married. Right. You, well, you had, that was true thing. throughout society. I mean, yeah. uh, Norman DePoe's wife uh, was a teacher and she had to quit her job when she got married and was pregnant. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. it was an era. It was an era. Uh, so, yeah, you, you talked about also the the, um, the transformation. Um, how did Watergate change things, do you think? Well, completely. I mean, 
the gallery started to change after the pipeline debate became more aggressive. Then uh, the graduates came out of the journalism schools mm -hmm. and they started going to the press gallery. Uh, guys like Clark Davey of the Globe and Mail was a typical, he was one of the first grads from Western. Yeah. And then Watergate hit and everybody then wanted to be an investigative reporter. Peter Mansbridge said that he probably would have had trouble getting a job after Watergate. There would have been so <laughs> many talented people. Yeah. Um, and everybody wanted to be a journalist. And now, of course, everybody feels they can be. Everybody is, it seems. Twitter, yeah. iPhones, Snapchat, you've got Blackberries, you've you got it. Yeah. Um, and so everybody now, there's been a, Roy McGregor uh, in the book uh, told me that uh, there's been a cheapening of opinion. Uh, everybody has an opinion now. It doesn't matter who's got uh, information to back it or who's yeah, that's interesting. It. And, uh, and he feels that social media has really dumbed down the whole field of opinion. Um, and, and, and I think we'd have to say in this craft, we, we were, we did not have our eyes sufficiently open around our, for instance, our diversity as a country, you okay. know, we, we, our, our situated knowledge was, was a fairly limited one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even today, you know, the business is a bit of a challenge with diversity. Uh, I mean, yes, women, there are more women in, in, in roles, but, you know, does it really reflect the look of Canada? Yeah. Uh, I, don't I don't think, think any, so. I don't think anybody could say that. Yeah. Um, one other thing that happened, of course, was television in the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, question period became a very different beast. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Mansbridge had a great line. He said, you know, suddenly MPs came uh, dressed up. You know, they, they no longer <laughs> look like their suits were made out of the covers of a 56 Chevy. Yeah. And, uh, and people, you know, learned to speak crisply. And, and of course, the big charade was uh, everybody would move around behind whoever was speaking. So they were not. That's right. Appeared to House be, of Commons always had 300 members in it. Right. Even <laughs> when there were about 10. Right. That's <laughs> right. right. But uh, it wasn't quite what the press gallery had hoped for. The press gallery wanted uh, the equivalent of print, you know, where you could see yeah. the environment around. Uh, you only see the speaker. And, and so a lot of stuff happens outside a camera that you don't see. And yeah. this was uh, originally the aim of the people who supported it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a classic example was when Trudeau had a shoving match with the NDP on the side of the house. And uh, there was really nobody in there in the, in the gallery to watch that. Um, and it was an accident that that, that got captured. Yeah, I mean, I, I arrived, of course, a few years after TV had arrived, and uh, what people would tell me right away was the the gallery itself is largely empty now. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. You know, the, maybe there would be a somewhat full for question period, but never for debates, never for readings of bills, never for uh, procedural things, that uh, people began to use TV as a bit of a crutch. And as you point out, it was a very limited crutch because you only really saw who was speaking at the given yeah. moment. In fact, I was in the house the day that they celebrated or marked the 150th anniversary of the press gallery. And there was a book published by the press gallery. There were three of us in the press gallery, two of the people who had worked on the book. And I was there because uh, I was right, doing some research. And somebody moved a motion to celebrate the press gown. They looked up and there was nobody, nobody there. there. <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite embarrassing. <laughs> well, you you point out in the book that uh, in the in the days gone by, that the press gallery would actually be aligned on one side of the commons, depending on you know on, on which part of the partisan divide they were That's on. That's right. I mean, if you if you worked for a liberal paper and the liberals in power, you sat to the right of the speaker, as did the members on the floor of the House of Commons sit to the right of the speaker. If the liberals lost the election, 
they'd flip to the other side and you'd move to the the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's pretty empty up there. Yeah. You know, there's not yeah. that many up there. I'm, I'm sure you get, um, uh, asked a lot about, uh, about restraint now, about media restraint, because there was a time I think in your career and in, in mine for that matter, where, uh, it looked like media expansion was just going to go on forever. I mean, you, you almost had to be an idiot not to make a lot of money in the business as an owner. And now you have to be a bit of a genius to make any. Right. Um, what do you think the consequence of restraint in this country has been? Well, I worry about uh, the future because I don't know if people are aware of what a crisis there is in, in, in news. I mean, we've lost about 250 papers in the last seven or eight years, you know, weeklies and dailies. Staffs have been cut. Um, bureaus have been eliminated in, in Ottawa. Um, there are many regional papers that used to have good reporters on mm. Parliament Hill who did articles that reflected what was going on in the lives of people in, you know, Regina and Saskatoon mm. and, you know, BCTV used to have a, a, a presence there, as did Montreal and uh, Ottawa uh, CTV stations. Yep. And uh, that's a real worry because I think, uh, let's face it, I mean, democracy depends on a flow of information, credible information, and and, and there's been a, a diminution of it. And I think it's a real threat to Canadian democracy, yeah. if that's the case. It used to be that we would be very grumpy if um, a minister or the prime minister or, or even an MP would go back to a riding in order to release news. <laughs> now, it's about the only way that that riding finds out about news that might be germane to it. Right. right. And they're photo ops, basically, these yeah. things. So you, the other advantage to the politician is they don't get grilled by a whole lot of people with any expertise necessarily. I mean, it's general assignment people that are covering this stuff, not to diminish what they do, because now everybody has to be a generalist and, yeah. and be an expert on about seven different subjects from one day to the next. Uh, and that's another problem. I mean, people are blogging. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're doing their regular deadlines, and then they got their Twitter deadlines, I mean, I'm amazed that there is so much good reporting still available to to Canadians. Yeah, there is. And uh, but one area I want to raise with you is, it, uh, I mean, you're asked a lot of questions. I'm sure about what's happening below the border. I want to get to that in just a second. But I want to stay on our side of the border for a moment. I, you know, I've teach I've, I've been teaching now for 14 years, and I can count on one hand the number of students who have seen Ottawa as a calling. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, it's definitely true. I mean, it used to be the pinnacle. I mean, I remember as a 22-year-old walking up those uh, steps mm -hmm. yeah. and just kind of pinching myself to say, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. I don't think people have that feeling anymore. Um, and I think uh, the game isn't quite what it used to be. You know, Is it because of question period and the, the seeming dysfunctionality of that? Is it, uh, well, is got, it the inability to get information? Uh, is it like, what? what is it? It, it just doesn't have the same cachet anymore. I mean, I, I think there's, there's well, first of all, there's a lot more action in the cities, hmm. uh, which are much closer uh, to you. I mean, uh, you know, the Ford, Ford era in Toronto was a madcap adventure for a reporter. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, unfortunately. Um, that's Rob Ford, by the way. Yeah. Well, the current the Doug, the Doug ones aren't, the Doug one was, aren't, aren't sleepers either. No, yeah, they're yeah, not. Yeah. Um, so, and the provinces, uh, you know, have 
increasingly become where the action is. I mean, let's look at what's going on here with, you know, between Alberta and BC yeah. uh, on, on oil and energy. But even, even the legislative galleries are not seemingly the place to go either. Yeah. There's, some, there's some kind of a turnoff. Is it because politics are deemed to be of a, an entirely different generation and not of, not of like a young person's generation? Well, I, I don't know, Kirk, what the answer is, but I think there's been a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the media in general has been so negative about politicians that I think, you know, we're all, we're all accepting that, you know, they're, they're dishonest, they're not telling the truth. Uh, some of that's true, but I, I think we've we've ended up with a situation where we've kind of demeaned the importance. I mean, I can't believe that people want to run anymore. And you know, I mean, it's such a tough business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get maligned from one end of the day to the next, and uh, I, I certainly wouldn't get into it. Yeah, uh, you've had your go with it, and you know what it's like. I mean, well, I mean, the, the difference now is, I think the the anonymity of social media, and and the fact that I think. Um, for a certain amount of time, you had to stand up, raise your hand, speak up, and, and identify yourself before yeah. you were permitted to raise those kinds of concerns. And these days, you know, you just set up a goofy account and yeah. let her rip. All I know is, and I deal with this in the book, there's some research that shows there's a direct correlation between engagement in civic affairs and voting and information. Yeah. Government, inf- not I don't mean government information. I mean news information. People who are engaged in the news of the day tend to be more engaged in their community. There's yeah. a direct link between those things. Yeah. And uh, as the diminution of news has upon us, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that you know turnouts in voting are, are way down. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, I want to take it back though to one area that we explored a bit earlier, and, and that that was the diversity piece uh, in all of this. And uh, can you assess? how much responsibility the media have had for their own diminution. It's not just the politicians denying the information. Have media been their own worst enemies at times? Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole business of gotcha journalism has, you know, really Mm. had a a poisonous effect. I mean, Eric Malling, who in our day was one of the great investigative reporters Mm. uh, for CBC and CTV, uh, he fessed up later years and said, you know, we were far too tough on people. And, you know, the whole idea of trying to, you know, put people in jail or get their ministers to resign uh, has been a, a really negative thing. And what it did was it made the politicians draw into a little shell and erect all these barriers. And they hunkered down. And as they hunkered down, we got more aggressive. And uh, I mean, I think you know, this uh, Acosta thing uh, with Trump is a good example. I mean, Trump behaved badly, but Acosta didn't acquit himself very well either. I mean, he, you know, he could have, <laughs> he could have been less aggressive about the way he was doing things. I mean, I don't think it brings a lot of, uh, um, and, and points to the press. And are we almost returning to that, uh, those days of, of, of kind of tribal conduct where you have a Fox news on one side and a, maybe an MSNBC and perhaps a CNN on the other side. And they speak to their own cohorts, but nobody from the other cohort comes and pays attention to them and, dis- and spends a lot of time discrediting them. Well, I hope, I hope we're not going to come to the, the kind of divisions that we're seeing south of the border, but you're right. I mean, there's a, a sharp division. Um, there's an echo chamber and it's kind of, you know, one voice 
on one side and totally different on the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think some of that is happening uh, in, in the country. Uh, but I think we're so far a long way from what we're seeing in the States. I mean, mainly because we don't have a wild card like Trump as the as the head of our government. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Lewis, it's been great talking to you. Thanks a lot for spending time today. Been wonderful. See you again. Bob Lewis is the author of Power, Prime Ministers and the Press. It's newly published from Dundurn Publishing. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening to BIV Today. We'll see you next time. 